Welcome to The Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello to The Banker Midweek. This week, your editors are Liz Lumley and Joy McKnight. Hi, Joy. Hey, Liz. Hi. Uh, So we have lots to talk about in this edition. So why don't we start off, as always, with stories from the only website bankers like you need to use, thebanker.com. So this is one story I, I found a bit intriguing, which was Bank of America has released 608 patents as part of their innovation program, and it's kind of a record number of patents uh, for for uh, tech products and, and, and applications. And about 26% of those are women, which is very good, as it is International Women's Day, which we will get get to uh, get to very soon. But I was intrigued by this story, um, and the headline for the story is "Bank of America Innovation Culture Drives Patent Applications." Now, outside of that specific news portion, I was intrigued because in it they explain that the bank does not have an innovation lab. Now, I've been talking about this for a while. This kind of slow death of the innovation lab, how a lot of it was theater and it really didn't get integrated into the bank or actually used by the business. Is this is an example that kind of that innovation lab is dead? What do you think, Joy? Well, I think it's really interesting because if you if you think about how the banks have evolved, let's say, over the past even decade in terms of their digital transformation journey, obviously at the beginning, that kind of innovation only happened in one area of the bank. So I think when the banks were setting up those innovation labs, that's exactly what they were doing, was they were actually trying to involve a wider group of people in innovation and also make it make it feel like that's their a part of their job, no matter what area of the bank they were working in. So I do think that it really, those innovation labs, and when they first came out, they were a big thing, right? And they were new, they were interesting, and everybody wanted to be a part of it. But it is what is kind of like the cool kids in the lunch table, though, wasn't it a bit? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. for sure. But I mean, but the, the whole idea was to try and engage with a much broader mm-hmm. um, section of the bank in terms of innovation and stuff. And of course, they all did hackathons, all of that kind of stuff. But I think that actually started the evolution of change. And I do think that all of those things, they do come to an end, right? So if you've actually you know, uh, created that innovation spirit across the whole bank, then why would you have a lab just to do that? Mm-hmm. And I just, I remember also doing, uh, I know you've taken over the tech vision column, <laughs> but I did the tech vision column before. And I remember talking to a chief innovation officer who just said, uh, you know, in three or four years, there shouldn't be a chief innovation officer. Yeah. You know, that should just be embedded in the whole bank. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, I know. I think that's, that's the whole, it's all part of that digital journey. About yeah, should there be a digital product and a real product? You know, it's uh, yeah, we're all going in that direction. But I thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, in fact, it kind of on what you're talking about. I think um, Andrew McKibben, who's international head of technology at Bank of America, he's quoted in the story by saying, um, "This patent program leverages all of our employees and their diverse perspectives, and it better drives client-focused solutions because it's you know they kind of have ownership of what they're creating." So. I thought that was interesting, which is why (laughs) we made a good story for the banker. So moving on to another uh, banker story. Uh, So we we get um, we write a lot about sustainability and net zero, and that's becoming more of a uh, an issue from a regulatory perspective, investment perspective, from uh, taking on a lot of time. 
from banks. And there's an explainer from uh, one of our freelancers uh, who is uh, looking at, uh, does net zero have to start somewhere? And she asks, do banks need a climate transition plan? And there are a few people in, in part of the story which talked about that transition plans were very complicated for banks. And a lot of these plans have banks dealing with moving targets. And it's like credit bubble risk with the uh, transition uh, risks going on. And I know climate change isn't simple, but I get to, gets to the point at times where I think, is it really that complicated? Is it complicated? Yes. Okay, it is, right. <laughs> I'm being facetious. <laughs> I think it's super complicated. And just to get the data that's needed, because you just think about, you know, a story that we also did, which was around BNP Paribas, um, mm. you know, being challenged. The lawsuits. Yeah, yeah, being challenged in the courts around it. And so to have, you know, to be able to mobilize that data, to be able to, you know, uh, you know, measure what they're doing and be very transparent, you know, about how, you know, how they're putting together this transition plan, I think is really is super complicated. And I think the other thing we need to think about is no longer just about climate or the environment or sticking to 1.5 degrees Celsius um, increase in temperature, but it's also about biodiversity. You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden there's this whole nature risks that the banks have to take into consideration as well. Um, so I don't think it's going to get any less complicated. That's All the right, problem. I back down. I back mm. down. It's very complicated. All right. Well, it's an excellent explainer, um, which uh, Philippa lays out several plans uh, to navigate this very, very complicated issue of, of striving for net zero. So those of you who um, are now our wonderful listeners to the Banker Midweek podcast know that uh, myself and Barbara Pianese spoke about our Women in Fintech Roundtable that Joy, you put together, uh, which is in this month's issue of The Banker. Now, today is International Women's Day. So I kind of wanted to, I, I gave my views uh, on it last uh, last week and so did Barbara. But I, since uh, you put together the roundtable, I have some questions for you, uh, Joy. Why do we still need International Women's Day? What do you think? Well, I think because of the inequality that still exists in society, you think about it like it manifests itself uh, in the gender pay gap, uh, which is, you know, still in existence in, in, in banking and financial services. Um, it manifests itself in how many, you know, we haven't reached gender equality when it comes to women in senior positions, etc. So I do think it's a really important marking uh, and you just see, you know, you really see the amount of activity that happens around this day. It's an imp important marking of, you know, this inequality and how we can actually make that change to have that equality. And for me, it's, you know, it's not just about gender anymore either. It's, you know, and a lot of people bring in, you know, inequality across the board and the real need to drive diversity, et cetera. And I think we need to think about it in that way. But yeah, I think it's interesting because I remember talking to a friend of mine who was just like, what? Women are equal. And I was like, oh my goodness. And, oh, you what, know, so what, what, what gender was this person? So I chaired a panel yesterday um, that was hosted by Cognito, uh, which is about uh, diversity and equality in both um, like media and comms. Uh, and what was really quite interesting is COVID, you know, on the one hand was quite good for women, right? Because it allowed you to be much more flexible, you know, work from home, et cetera, like that. Um, but it also it was quite bad, right? Because a lot of women, you know, who... Of young children. Yeah, yeah who, who, you know, have 
a lot of caring responsibility of children, etc. You know, for a lot of them, they also not only were they working full time, but they were also homeschooling. Right. So it was a very difficult time. So I just think that encapsulates why we still need International Women's Day. Mm. I mean, in the in the roundtable, did anything did you learn anything from it? Maybe didn't learn anything new. But what really impressed me was the resilience and the optimism of the women fintech uh, founders and CEOs that were part of the roundtable um, and just their ability to, you know, even because obviously the fintech world has seen a bit of a hit in the last year in terms of fundraising, et cetera, and things. But they were really optimistic about the potential that they had and their business had because they were really trying to solve real world problems. And then, you know, some of them were pay tech, some of them were reg tech, et cetera. I guess the thing that that also came out was just that it's a very challenging environment for talent acquisition and management. And that was one of the biggest challenges that they all brought up in the roundtable. Interesting. Okay, so we are moving on to stories that are not in the banker yet, <laughs> but they influence some of the things that, that we're talking about. So the first story that caught my eye um, was a story that came out today in uh, the FD. We know the FT well. Uh, so a top Goldman Sachs trader, Joe Montesano, has to exit the bank. He is 46 years old, and he was Goldman's head of equity trading for the Americas. And he is leaving after three years of huge profits for the bank. I think um, Goldman's revenues from equity trading totaled $11 billion in 2022. So the reason why I pulled this story outside of just the news of a top trader leaving is we're seeing a lot of evidence uh, and bank results that show that while the world suffered during COVID, the banks really didn't. And how do you think that's going to play out long term? What are your views? Uh, Well, I think not all investment banks did as well as Goldman. That's one thing, because the investment banking uh, environment was quite muted in 2022. Um, I think other banks have shown, um, you know, you know, their profits are rising, etc. They, you know, on the back of the uh, rising interest rate environment. Um, I think it's going to be a very difficult situation for banks going forward um, because obviously as interest rates rise, mortgage rates rise, you know, there could be defaults as central banks around the world and governments start to unwind the sort of the quantitative easing that they put forward in during COVID. And uh, a lot of people are made to pay back sort of the loans that they, they took out, et cetera, to see their way through COVID. Again, that's going to be a very tough environment. And you, we, we might start to see this increase in bad loans, you know, sou- loan souring in that sense. So I think banks are going to be have to, I think they're going to have to be careful in terms of things going forward that they're, you know, help giving the support that their clients need in order to survive this downturn in the global economy and also some of the other challenges that are coming forward. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's going to be a very... It's a long tail to the story. Yeah. 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 We talk about this a lot. Um, this is the part I loved from the FTP, and I'm sorry to say this. Uh, profits were such that Mon- Montessaro was paid more than the $35 million handed to Chief Executive David Solomon in 2021. Um, and also, for people familiar with the matter, Montesano... Uh, had, does not have another job lined up. So good luck. Good, good, good luck, Joe. I hope that you managed to survive with your over $35 million that you got in 2021. Anyway, and um, if you want to call me, I am available for adoption uh, anytime. So the next story a bit, I'm going to make a comment on this. I have to 
I have to use my words correctly. So this is a story that will be in the Banker FinTech Fortnightly uh, tomorrow, the, our weekly, our bi-weekly FinTech roundup that we put out. UK banking as a service platform provider Griffin is to become a bank. So they have finally been given, subject to restrictions, a banking license by the UK. They beat some other well-known uh, money services in the UK to that banking license. Now, I mean, subject to restrictions. That's interesting in itself. Yeah, they can hold. I think they can hold a limited number of deposits and carry out a limited number of payment services. So they recently closed a 12.5 million funding round, and so the firm has raised a, a total of 19 million since 2020. So I met these guys in Money 2020, and they started with, you have to meet these guys, Liz Griffin, you have to meet them because they're a bank run by tech people, not like those bankers. And I went, Hmm. You know, the publication I write for is called The Banker. Um, so <laughs> that didn't really, it didn't warm me to them. I, I do apologize, Griffin. I wish you all the success in the world. But it's interesting that we're seeing, you mentioned the downturn in the tech industry, which is affecting the fintech industry. There's a, a long running viewpoint in Silicon Valley type tech startups to have this, you know, period of frenzied hyper growth at all costs. And we seem to be in a transition period where we're moving to more profitability. We're moving, you know, that hockey stick growth, especially, I think, in fintech and in financial services. It's, it's not, it's, it's more prevalent. So, you know, are we, are we really going to, is, is it a good thing that we're going to have more banks run by non-bank people? Or shouldn't we have, I mean, like when I go to the dentist, I want my dentist to have, be a dentist. I've been to the dentist recently, as you can tell, it was not a happy experience. But um, but my dentist is very nice. That's why I go to him. Um, yeah, I mean, what do you think about this bank not run by bankers? Yeah, I yeah, I, I don't think that you have the same amount of trust in a bank that's completely run by non-bankers. But I would have to say I'm sure a lot of them, you know, maybe it's tech people at the top, but they have to have bankers or people that understand the banking system you know, within the bank as such. Um, and there's two big reasons for that is risk and compliance. And those, you know, for me, those are the most important things, right? So if you don't have un people that understand risk or compliance, then, yeah, it's it, it's a different, it's, a, it's very difficult, I would say, uh, because you don't have all your bases covered. I like the idea of that compliance, you know, baked in from the outset, which I think a lot of fintechs don't do. And they sort of add the compliance at the end of yeah. it. When, when I, I, wish, I wish I had total recall. There was a startup I had on stage a few years ago, and he said uh, the best money they ever spent was hiring a lawyer for regulatory and compliance. And uh, yeah, I agree, a lot of, a lot of uh, fintech companies, that's the last thing they think about which is a uh, to their peril. <laughs> All right, coming back to, uh, to, to the U, well, staying in the UK, actually. So this was, um, you know, we're all mourning the death of, of Tech Nation, and we are in a transition period for uh, innovation and financial services uh, in this country, in the UK. Um, the UK government recently unveiled a £360 million plan to become a tech superpower by 2030. So, you know, this is, this is going to be uh, part of a newly created Department for Science, Innovation, and Technology. It's going to lead the plan. Some of the, the things that are mentioned is to set up a supercomputer facility. 
some of the commentators on this announcement, I actually very much agree with, which is $360 million is not a lot of money. You know, for example, Germany launched a uh, billion euro fund to invest just in deep tech and climate tech companies, not this sort of wide uh, ocean of, of innovation tech the UK have. And I think also there's a 500 million from, uh, from France has been opposed to fund deep tech startups. You know, Poland and the Czech, Rebu- and the Czech Republic also have uh, similar funds. They're much, much smaller startup ecosystems than the UK, which is probably one of the largest in the world, if not the largest in the world for fintechs. And I, you know, I, I hate to say it. I know when when we're not supposed to be, I'm going to be Liz Lumley. This is my viewpoint, not necessarily the viewpoint of the banker. But it's 360 million seems to me like these people think the term innovation theater is a compliment. I think this is a show. Okay, what do you, give us give us a give us a, a more balanced viewpoint. What do you think? No, I agree. It's uh, like you know, if you think about it, 360 over the next. Eight years, seven, eight years, that's about four, 45 million a year. For me, that's a drop in the ocean. And you think of the amount, uh, you know, that you've pointed out already, but you also think of China, you know, the amount that they put into uh, funding their fintech community, uh, you know, ecosystem, etc. You know, that supercomputer facility, you know, working on technologies like nuclear fission and artificial intelligence you just think all that money right there okay we're going to have one more story you know tech is just a tool and tools aren't useful unless they're being used they're just you know sitting in a box and i'm really interested about how tools get delivered to you know specifically consumers and and customers you know one of the one of the my favorite stories i wrote earlier on in my career was about how contactless was rolled out to the uk public via public transportation you know, kind of getting people used to the idea of a contactless card, which now is basically uh, ubiquitous uh, across the country. Um, it's very fun to amuse American tourists when you use your contactless card. They think it's magic, but, you know, I can, I can make fun of Americans because I am one. But this is about a story that was out. Uh, Mercedes has added Pay Plus. Mercedes-Benz Mobility turns your car into a payment device. And in terms of embedded finance. Um, and we're running an, an embedded finance series on thebanker.com. So we'll look out for uh, SEB Bank talking about embedded finance next week. Um, it seems like the automobile is ground zero for the rise of embedded finance. I mean, I look back, it's where people started using mobile telephones, car phone warehouse. Um, is this, you know, is, that, is this where we should be looking? Do you, do you agree that automobiles are the ground zero for embedded finance, that's where it's really going to take hold in the general public. I, I'm not sure, actually. Like, I think it's very, you know, cool tech, actually. Mm-hmm. So I think it is very interesting. But at the same time, if you think about the way the whole world has to shift, like we talked about sustainability earlier on, you know, shouldn't we be shifting away from the individual car but I think that's a different issue. I mean, like at Money 2020, J.P. Morgan had a whole car exhibition. You know, it's kind of that there's the world the way we wish it to be and the world the way it is. And if stuff gets used because it's in your car, because people, a lot of people still drive cars. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> you know, do you think that's going to be a, a route that's going to be part of that huge growth of that market? I think so. And I think a lot of the car companies are actually putting a lot of emphasis into this 
I was at an award ceremony uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and the person I was sitting next to, who was in payments, had just been hired by a Nordic car company to explore exactly this. So they're putting a lot of effort into it. Um, I ride a bike, so if they could <laughs> I do don't embedded, own a car. <laughs> if you could do embedded finance on a bicycle, I might, you know. Hey, it's got wheels. Yeah, exactly. It's got wheels. Excellent. You've heard it here first. Embedded finance on a bicycle. Joy McKnight will be our first customer. Lovely. Joy, thank you so much for joining me for The Banker Midweek. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Liz. Thank you for listening to The Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.